So I mentioned at the beginning of the retreat about how Ajahn Buddha Dasa would tell people who would come to his monastery to go into the forest and let nature teach you about your own nature. Discover your own nature in nature. And he was very clear nature was a teacher. That the Dharma was to be found in nature. Nature to be found in the Dharma. And so I'm wondering what you're discovering for yourselves about your own nature. Your nature in some ways, and I think particularly I feel this with the, these two ridges, that it's a very powerful mirror. And it ref- just reflects back many things, but it also reflects back ourselves to ourselves. In some ways, the mirror is very empty in nature, and we get to see ourselves playing out. Our mind, our heart, our habits, our personality. And sometimes we can get quite small and petty and reactive and demanding. And I want the wind to stop. I want the big mammals to come. <laughs> but not too big and not too close. But we also discover other dimensions of our nature. You know, when we get quiet, when presence, awareness is more foreground, you could say. And all of that usual stuff, drama, worries, projections, preoccupations, fixations, when that starts to settle, we start to discover some different dimensions of our nature. One of the things that I want to point to today is, is how we, we in, intuit and, and viscerally feel at times less separate, less disconnected, less isolated, more kinship or kithship, which is, kith is more about place. And we feel a kind of kinship with place. Or you're lying down, as some of you are doing, and you're sky gazing. And at some point, all there is is sky. Awareness and sky. Vast, open, clear. Not a problem in sight, not a drama, not a thought. We get this intimation of our nature. Oh, right. Oh, 
And sometimes we can look at the sky and go, oh, the sky is so vast. The night sky, vaster. And then sometimes we're gazing and dissolving into the sky and we realize, oh, I'm not separate from the vastness. The vastness is not out there. That awareness, vastness intermingle. And there's a practice called mingling the mind with the sky, which, which helps you sort of dissolve into that. And I invite you in, in remaining time here to some point lie in a meadow, just gaze into the blue, infinite blue, and just sense in, oh, this is reflecting something of my own nature that's not separate from the sky. Oh, we feel these fierce winds, these howling gusts that whistle up the valleys and over the mountaintops and hurl through the landscape and pummeling grasses and our bodies. And we feel that vitality, we feel that power, that strength, that awesomeness. And sometimes it feels like, oh, the wind, it's, you know, it's, 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 it feels like an other, you know, this thing that's battering us. <laughs> and other times we might feel, oh, that's, I can feel the wind in myself. I can feel that force, that vitality, that power, not separate. It's a beautiful song. I won't torture you with singing it with my singing voice but there's a song it, I think it's by well Krishna Das sings it, sings it but it's about Neem Karoli I am like the wind no one can own me I live in everyone no one can hold me I can't remember the rest. <laughs> I live in every heart. Mm-hmm. So we can begin to see these things that sometimes we think of as external, oh, as part of my own nature. This is a poem from uh, Miss Oliver. She says, this morning the beautiful white heron was floating along above the water and then into the sky of this, the one world we all belong to, where sooner or later everything is part of everything else, whose thought made me feel a little while quite beautiful myself, where everything is part of everything else, whose thought, meaning Because if everything is part of everything else, then I am part of everything else and everything is part of me. That thought made me smile. So times we may intimate that, we might feel that, oh, I'm not so separate. When I drink this delicious spring water, 
from the mountain, from the snow melt, from the rain, from the storms. Oh, I'm becoming snow. I'm becoming snow melt. I'm becoming rainwater. I'm becoming ocean evaporation. Or we eat this delicious food that's so love-filled and healthy and grown probably from mostly from local farms, I imagine around Taos, maybe Santa Fe, maybe a bit further. You know, and just like these grasses and plants and trees, right, those lettuces and beetroot and carrots and whatever else we've been eating, cherries and right, they're drawing up the the minerals right, and from the soil right, being passed on through mycelium networks, drawing up minerals, elements, metals from exploding supernovas, from exploding stars that congealed into earth and mass and became rock and then over millions, billions of years became soil and now is is in that tomato that you eat, that becomes you, that you become, not become, but you you re-become earth, you metabolize the earth. And just like the elements practice we were doing, that sometimes that's an immediate realization. Sometimes it requires more reflection. Like, and, it, and it's interesting contemplative practice when you're eating, and you're biting the carrot, like you're eating the earth. Right? And you, because of the way our mind conceptualizes and and dualizes, separates. We think, oh, that's the carrot that I bought from the shop. And, but it's earth. Right? It's earth. It's from the soil. Right? We're, we're becoming soil. Not separate. So what does that mean if we're eating all this food and we're becoming part of the local microbiome in a way? When you leave this retreat, there's more in you from the New Mexico mountains than anything else. Water, fluids, air, nutrients. And so, you know, as you know, in Buddhist teaching, there's a a lot of exploration about the self. What is the self? Who are we? What is this thing called me, myself, and I that I spend my most of my life ruminating about? Me, myself, and I. And when we realize that 
thread of connection through water, through elements, through food, through soil, through weather, through ancestry, through biology. We come to see, oh, I'm not as separate, not as unique as I... No, we're unique. We're a unique expression of these elements for a time. So some words from a poet from Fred Lamont called Ancestry. I'll just share pieces of it. My DNA results just came in. Just as I suspected, my great-great-grandmother was a monarch butterfly. Much of who I am is still wriggling under a stone. I'm part lava part hummingbird too. There is dinosaur tar in my bone marrow. My golden hair sprang out of a meadow in Palestine. Genghis Khan is my fourth cousin. My uncle is a mastodon. There are traces of white people in my saliva. 3.7 billion years ago, I swirled in hydrogen dust dreaming of a planet. More recently, say 60,000 BC, I walked on hairy paws across a land bridge joining Sweden to Botswana. I can no longer hide my heritage of raindrops and cougar scat. My mud was molded with your grandmother's tears. Don't pretend that Earth is not one family. Don't pretend we never hung from the same branch. Don't pretend we do not ripen on each other's breath. Don't pretend we didn't come here to forgive. So what are your DNA results? Your great-great-grandfather was a walrus. <laughs> your second cousin once removed was a banana slug. <laughs> and we know we share DNA, so much DNA with so many things. You know, bananas, 60% shared DNA. Chimpanzees, 99%, I think. Um, trees, 60%. Um, you know, if we trace our lineage, right, we might do a genealogy chart a few hundred years, a few generations. But if we go back, right, we go back into the sea and we go back into the soil, and we go back into cyanobacteria two and a half billion years ago, photosynthesizing. Before that, we go back into clay. And before that, into stars. We don't need to take psychedelics to realize how psychedelic reality is. You can, if you want, but you can, it's profound just to contemplate. 
like this body is so mysterious and so intelligent, just like every other intelligent, every other life form has amazing intelligence that's here out of millions and millions of years of figuring it out. Figuring out how to absorb light and turn it into sugar through just absorbing carbon from the air and other minerals and molecules. It's magic. It's a magical world. And yet, and yet we feel quite separate. We feel quite different. We feel often quite other from each other, from nature, from life. And so, one of the beautiful things about coming to the woods and the mountains is some of that sense of separateness starts to slough off. And we start to feel a little more held or accompanied or welcomed or kinship. It's a beautiful word word from a uh, Navajo teacher, Lila June. She talks about kincentricity. Right? This, 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 this awareness and knowing of our kinship with life. Beautiful teaching, beautiful teacher. And that's what the earth, that's what, that's what's begging to happen, right? Our planet is, you know, suffering greatly. Species are suffering greatly because we don't feel kinship. We don't feel connected. We don't think our actions have consequences. And so, so many thinkers and writers and philosophers and activists realize that the, the so-called saving of the planet, of restoring ecological balance, comes from this shift in consciousness. That we have to realize that the earth is us and we are the earth and not separate. And what happens to the earth happens to us. What happens to us happens to the earth. What happens to indigenous communities who are losing their land in the Amazon and elsewhere because of deforestation, because of extractive industries? It happens to us. We're not separate. And so when we put our bodies and our hands on the land, we can start to feel, oh, right. Harm one thing and harm everything. Or as John Muir says, touch one thing and everything in the universe moves. But it's also a, it's a subtle sensibility and it's also a poetic sensibility. But we can learn to feel the visceralness of it. And as we're sloughing off the hubris of centuries of dominance and thinking that humans are the only ones who have consciousness, sentience, feeling, we're realizing how sensitive and life is. You know, when when you pluck a a leaf from a plant, the whole plant registers. Right? 
when the you know, the influx of the beetles come in, the Colorado beetle come in, the, the trees register and communicate to each other, producing more uh, hormones and other things to protect themselves. And we live in this incredibly intelligent world. And so as Einstein says, you know, we have to see the optical delusion of consciousness, this optical delusion of separation. And the Buddha spoke to this in his teaching on dependent arising, on conditionality, that everything arises due to causes and conditions, and because everything arises according to cause and conditions, life is a matrix of conditions supporting and conditioning each other. The wind arises because of differential in coolness and warmth, and the, the seeds arising because of the rainwater and the sunlight and the nutrients and the mycelium and the soil. And, and everything is arising due to causes and conditions. Everything is dependent on everything else. And we know this, but when we come outdoors into nature, we can feel it more viscerally. We can see it, we can hear it. And when we walk in the forest and we see the, the, um, the firs dying and the uh, pines from beetle, from the drought, Right? The causes and conditions that lead to the stress on trees that make it harder for them to survive. Right? We see, we feel it. We feel the painfulness of it. And I live in California. We're seeing, not this year, but usually the drought and the dryness and the fires and the parched soil. And we realize that that, does not, that is not the, the, the conditions for life. So tonight, I can invite you, if you stay up until it's dark or enough to see the stars, beautiful stargazing night tonight, I have a poem for you to reflect on, and to see even the stars in the sky, not separate, just as the moon that we're beautifully watching rise and set at night, and how much influence it has over our bodies, over waters, seeming so distant and yet we're intimately woven with its cycles. This is from Tyler Kent White, writes, One night when you were just a star, somebody hung every hope, every wish, every dream from your being, from your limbs. So if you ever feel inferior, I'll wait.
you ever feel inferior or ever start to doubt your beauty or your brilliance, just remember you have constellations, constellations lining the cathedral walls of your chest, a moon for a heart and the sunlight pouring through your skin. You are a symphony of stardust and you were born to shine. You are a symphony of stardust and you were born to shine. And you might think, oh, that's very poetic, that's very nice, your cathedral walls, line, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> You're a symphony of stardust, but it's true. Like everything is here is from stardust, constellated, going through bazillion iterations of, of life forms. It's a wonderful piece of writing. Maybe I'll share it. Probably won't have time this retreat from Aldo Leopold, who, one of the first great ecologists, who did his first uh, spell as a forest ranger uh, in the forests bordering this ranch, and most likely rode his horse through this ranch as they toured. Um, and why I'm telling that story now. But anyhow, it's kind of cool that Aldo Leopold <laughs> knew this land, uh, being such a beautiful writer and, and pioneering deep ecologist. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Stardust. Uh, he has this beautiful piece of writing, I think, from uh, his famous book. I forgot what it's called. Um, where he talks about it, he tracks that he traces a molecule X that gets released deep down in the earth. It's been undisturbed for hundreds of thousands of years, but a little uh, a long a grassroots. Uh, ruffles and draws it up through its through its uh, roots, and then of course, as it gets drawn up into the roots, then it gets eaten by a mouse, and the mouse takes it into the seed, into the into its burrow, and eventually the mouse gets eaten by a coyote, ends up in the coyote scat, and the coyote scat ends up in the stream, drifts down the stream, and then ends up being drawn up into a willow. And on it goes, becomes a beaver, and then it's just, and it's just a beautiful like, and that's that's life. Every life is like that. It's just we're made of these molecules. We were, at one point, beaver, and 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 glaciated rock, and who knows, sunflower dust, and it's wild. <clears throat> You know, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh has that teaching where he holds up a piece of paper, but you could say, you could hold up your hand and say, what is that? What is this? What is this? What is this? Huh? It's a finger. Or what else is it? Hmm? Everything, right. Sunlight, water, rain, oceans. I normally do that example with a piece of paper, right? 
I was gonna do it with a with this. Like, what is this? What is this? Come on. <laughs> Sun, clouds, right. Humor me. <laughs> Mycelium. <laughs> Humus. Carl Sandburg, I won't read this whole thing because it's long, but he talks about what, what, you know, what, what our mammalian ancestry is. He said, there's a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meats and the lapping of blood. I keep this wolf because the wilderness gave it to me. There's a fish in me. I know I came from saltwater blue gates. I scurried with shoals of herring. I blew water spouts with porpoise before land was, before the, the water went down. And then he goes, baboons and mockingbirds. And... We're so much more than who we think we are. look at a tree and, and again it's the optical delusion of consciousness and we think tree even though we probably know that there's two or three times as much tree underground but we think tree separate from the earth separate from me this is from Salman Rushdie talking about trees he says um, do jungle animals understand the true nature of the trees among which they have their daily being? We fail to know the greatest secret of all, that one day we too, he's talking about himself as an animal, we too will become as arboreal as they, and the trees whose leaves we eat, whose bark we gnaw, remember sadly that they were animals once, that they climbed like squirrels, bounded like deer, until one day they paused and their legs grew down into the earth and stuck there, spreading, and vegetation sprouted from their spraying heads. They remember this as a fact, but the lived reality of their fauna years, the how it felt in that chaotic freedom, is beyond recapture. They remember it as a rustle in their leaves. So we're walking past, like you probably saw the skull, the skeleton, and uh, probably an elk by the gate. Every year I see that disintegrating, and that that elk and the flesh and the bones and the minerals and is absorbed into the soil, and at some point metabolized metabolized and drawn up into those trees. Those trees are now arboreal elk, <laughs> right? What is death but some kind of transmutation?
And we can feel this with sound. I love listening to sound, the wind, the birds, particularly the river. And we know sound is vibration. Moves through the air, moves through mass. It's felt. And where does the sound end and we begin? Like that. Where does the sound that leaves the, the bird's throat, where does that sound that then vibrates in the inner ear, where does the sound end and the vibration of me begin? Where does sunlight end if it lands on my skin, warming my skin? Am I now not sunlight? So I'm just sort of playing with different ways to we can reflect and feel into and sense into different ways of, of knowing ourselves. And, and one of the beautiful ways that can happen when we're outside and when we're quiet, particularly when we're alone, like some of you were today, and we're going to have much more solo time tomorrow, where you're sitting quietly, maybe as you've been doing by the river or by a favorite tree or a rock or in the meadow lying down, just immersed, present, connected, attuned. And, you know, sometimes the, the miracles happen where all of your thoughts just disappear in the breeze and your mind's quiet and your heart is quiet and you just feel relaxed and present and relatively peaceful and it's just awareness of, of what's here, maybe the light, the wind, the breeze, the grass, the sound. And in, at times in those moments, if we actually were, were tracking the sense of self, the sense of me, the sense of I as this separate being with its life and purpose and problems and just disappears, just miraculously softens, quietens and dissolves. And we might not register that the sense of self has in that moment dissolved, we just might notice it as, oh, I'm very peaceful or very quiet, or very connected. But if we pay attention, we can see, at times, a sense of me, myself, and I just disappears. There's no you thinking, watching, looking. There's just experience happening. Just breeze blowing, clouds moving, birds singing. And uh, a clear presence, a clear knowing, clear awareness. But not my awareness, just, just knowing's happening, just naturally. And in those moments, the, the sense of I dissolves evaporates, 
one of the reasons why those moments are so peaceful and so profound. Ah, that churning of the mind, the ego mind has taken a vacation and we feel peaceful. We feel free, maybe. And then someone rings that bloody bell and you realize, oh shit, I'm late for something. I don't even remember what it was. I'm probably late for the meditation and they're all going to look at me and the teacher's going to scowl and not invite me back for the next retreat. I'm going to get an F grade. And suddenly the sense of self comes back. Me and my social self and relationship to others and whether I'm late or not or doing it right or not or all the dramas we can go through. And so we see the sense of self collapse back, tight, constricted, and we feel, oh, it's really quite painful to be in that separate self that feels like it's doing something wrong or should be doing something different. And then maybe you realize, oh, that's the work period. I don't have any work period. I can just chill out for another hour. So you kind of go back to lying on the hammock or the grass or whatever you're doing. And that sense of self that feels so real and solid and concrete can start to dissipate again. And this happens every day. It's called sleep. The, the self has to kind of acquiesce for sleep to happen. Through ruminating and we got me, myself and I problems, we're not going to fall asleep. It's when that sort of just, at some blessed moment, just relaxes and gives up. It's, ah, we fall asleep. And then we wake up. And before egoic consciousness has taken form, you might notice this, especially on retreat. You wake up and sometimes you might, oh, you don't even know where you are. Some, just a dawning of consciousness. You're looking around like, oh, what is this tent I'm in? Where am I? And again, it's very quiet, it's very peaceful because the self hasn't taken birth in that moment. So it's quiet. Just, oh. And then, oh shit, I'm late for meditation again. Damn, God. I thought we were supposed to be timeless. There's all these bells and schedules. And, uh, and suddenly the self is lamp back, right? Gotta be on time. Look good, you know. And then and then we can feel the the constriction and the painfulness of the constriction. Self is contraction. Ego is contraction. Fear, scarcity. Very unpleasant states of mind to be inhabiting or being gripped by. And so when we come outside into nature, 
we come into a world that's not doing that, right? It's not selfing. The Aspens are not saying, wow, you know, pretty cool over here. Look at my flutter. Best flutter in town, you know. And what's amazing about Aspens is they're one being. They're one being, you know, connected through roots. I mean, it's amazing. Talk about not-self, right? One being, many, many forms. Um, I lost my train of thought. What was I talking about? Selfing. Selfing. What about it? What part of it? See if you're paying attention. <laughs> Pardon? The Aspens, one being. Pardon? Sleeping consciousness, right? And the waking, right? And the painfulness of the constriction. And right, so we come out into nature that's not selfing. And and why it's wonderful, one of the reasons it's wonderful to come out in nature, particularly when we have more alone time of solitude, is we become influenced by a whole universe that's not selfing, that's not egoic, that's not separating. And so that sense of self that's, that's relational to other human beings can relax. We don't care how we look. We're not, we're not, you know, we're just being. Just, just like the trees are being. Like we sit by a tree that's just supremely in being. Just being tree, it's treeing. Right? And the rock is rocking. And the river's rivering. And we, and we feel, oh, it's just as it is. It's not anything else. It's not extra. It's not doing, it's not trying to be somebody. It's just being itself. And, and something at times relaxes in us. Like, oh, we can put that burden down of being somebody or trying to be somebody or trying to be better or get ahead or whatever the self-improvement project is. And just, oh, we just can, I can, I can be okay. I can be as I am and I can be okay as I am. Profoundly liberating. And then we go back into the dining room and everyone's around getting their mat getting their food with masks and you know suddenly that the, the self consciousness comes back and you realize it's your favorite food and you're loading it onto your plate and you can barely you know, I can barely carry it because it's just toppling over, you know. Because <laughs> there's 27 things for, for, for dinner that you thought, you know, you were going to be modest and then 16, so, God, but what, what about the 23rd? And then there's dessert and then there's the extra table and then I'm like, cherries? Like, <laughs> and suddenly you got this mountain of food <laughs> and you weren't even hungry. <laughs> Rob and I talk about this every night. <laughs> Oops, oh, I just died. I just died. Um, sorry, the speaker died, so I'm going to have to project, and you might need to come closer if, if you can't hear me. <clears throat> Obviously, time to end the talk. <laughs>
anyhow, so you got this toppling mound of food. You know, Mount Meru is there, you know. And you're suddenly feeling very embarrassed and self-conscious. And, and, so, and, and we see, oh, I was so peaceful by the river. I felt so free and selfless. And I come back to eat and suddenly constriction. And then maybe we're sitting on the porch and we, and we can see the humor in it and we laugh. We laugh at ourselves. We don't take it seriously. And, we, and that, all that constriction sort of dissolves again. And you're just gazing at this beautiful ridge. And, and so we see, what we see in nature, because we have the contrast of a lot of not-selfing, so we move a little more fluidly from constricted self to expansive non-self. We see, oh, this sense of self is very permeable. It's very unsolid. It's very conditioned. It's very relative. And we see, oh, right. The sense of self comes and goes. It's not so fixed. All the time I spend worrying and ruminating and trying to improve myself, improve this imaginary self that comes and goes, it's so insubstantial, something can relax. And then we get to see on a deeper level, when we see through the the construction of self and the ephemerality of self, then on a deeper level of understanding, we see that freedom allows self and not self to be. It's not about getting rid of the self, impossible project, because it's constructed anyway. But, it's, but freedom allows, reality allows self to be present in its egoic form and to be dissolved into emptiness. And, and our life flows between those two. Every, every day, every 24 hours, you know, they call sleep poor man's nirvana because we dissolve the self and then it comes back. And so with awareness, we can see the self coming and going. Time's very tight, constricted, painful, separate, longing, at times just ordinary and not a problem, and at times very dissolved and empty, quiet, peaceful, free. And so we don't take any of it too seriously. We don't buy into it too seriously. And then we have compassion when we're constricted, compassion when we're embarrassed, Compassion when we're deficient. Compassion when we're comparing ourselves negatively. Compassion when we're trying to be somebody other than who we are. We see how painful that is. And then so we bring love, we bring compassion to the, to the one who feels separate, the one who feels deficient, the one who feels lonely or isolated. And so, so ultimately our Awareness practice is infused with compassion. And so we meet all of that dance of self and not self with, with kind eyes.
just like we meet everyone else with kind eyes. And that's the potential, the gift of the practice and the gift of nature practices. This, what I'm pointing to becomes more available and more accessible. In the beginning, it comes as a glimpse, aha, as a profound insight. And over time, it just starts to reveal itself as self coming and going, self feeling separate, self feeling connected, self dissolved. And it's all just dance of life. So that's all I had to say for this evening. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.